0: Thank you for joining us. Today we'll study the letter of Paul to Titus. We'll be discussing false teachers and the qualification for elders and church leaders. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the letter of Paul to Titus, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us up with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and for this group and for your word. And as we study today some of the qualifications that you've set forth for elders and leaders in the church through the Apostle Paul I ask that you put on each of our hearts those areas of our life that we need to focus on so that we can be better ambassadors and represent you to this very dark world that we live in. I ask that you speak through me, speak through others who will speak up today. Let it be your words, not my words. We certainly don't want to mislead anyone. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to begin the epistle of Paul to Titus. This is Paul's second-to-last letter that he wrote just prior to his death. It's believed it was written in between the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. We don't know when Titus met Paul and was converted. After Paul's first imprisonment, Paul took Titus to Crete to minister with him there and then left Titus behind. We'll see that when we read verse 5. Titus had traveled extensively with Paul and had ministered with Paul. He's mentioned nine times in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Titus was both an understudy to Paul, and he was also a partner in ministry with Paul. Titus was a Gentile. Titus had also accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem when the issue of how Gentiles Can become Christians was discussed you remember there were some that we call Judaizers these were Jewish people who had converted to Christianity but they wanted to hold on to all of their traditions and the Mosaic law requirements that were in the Old Testament and they were saying in order for a Gentile to become a Christian they had to first become a Jew in order to be saved So not only did they have to have faith in Jesus Christ, but they also had to become circumcised and abide by all the Jewish Mosaic law. And if you recall, Paul went to Jerusalem to discuss that, and it was determined that that was false teaching, that that was not required, that Gentiles could come to faith and receive the Holy Spirit just like a Jewish person, and that is only by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. That is all that is required. It's by grace that we're saved, not by works. And so Titus had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem when that was discussed. So that also means that, as we'll see, Titus is very aware that that type of teaching is false, and he's going to have to deal with that type of teaching— as he's leading the churches in Crete. Now the island of Crete, it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's southeast of Greece. It's about 160 miles long and the width varies. It's anywhere from 7 to 35 miles wide. This letter to Titus is similar to Paul's letters to Timothy, who was another protege of Paul. And Paul writes these letters to these two young men to strengthen them and encourage them. These are two young pastors who Paul is now passing the baton to as they ministered through some very difficult situations. And we'll see as we get further into Titus what Titus is going to have to be dealing with. Now, Crete is mainly composed of Gentiles, but there are some Jews, and as we'll see Even some of these Judaizers, these are Jewish converts to Christianity who were also trying to, as I mentioned, say that you still had to abide by all the Jewish law and rituals and traditions, which was not true. That was false teaching. It's believed that this letter was written somewhere between A.D. 62 and 66. It's a short letter. There's only three chapters that we'll be covering. Chapter 1 primarily deals with the qualifications for church leadership. And so why don't we get started? I'll begin in verse 1. Paul, who's writing this, a bond servant of God. So Paul's saying that he is a willing slave in bondage to God, complete willingness on his part to serve God. He also says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's where he gets his authority. He was called, he was a messenger, he was an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So he's speaking with authority. He's a bond servant and an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God. So he's talking about us as believers, that we get our faith because we were chosen by God. Let me show you a verse on that. We'll flip over to the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fourth gospel. And we'll turn to chapter 6. Verse 65, Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So the Father extends his grace to us as Christians. He extends that to whom he wishes. How blessed we are to have been chosen by God. Now, we shouldn't get the big head. There isn't anything that we did to deserve it. It is by God's grace. We get what we didn't deserve. That's what we have received. That's what grace is, receiving something that we didn't deserve. So he is chosen for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So Paul's first responsibility is to bring God's elect to faith by being a vessel by which God can work through. That's what we're called to do. Let's look over in Romans Romans is the book right after Acts, and Acts is right after John, where we just were. And let me show you a verse there, Romans 10, verse 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so that's how we gain our faith. It's a mystery. While we've been elected before the foundations of the world, God elected us, we still have to hear which means somebody has to speak, and that's why we're left here. That's why God has left us here. We're part of the plan as Christians to help spread the gospel to others so that they can come to faith. They're already the elect, but they have to place their faith in Jesus Christ, and they have to hear, and so that's why we're left here. And so Paul sees that as one of his first responsibilities, is to bring God's elect to faith by being a vessel that God can work through. Verse 2, I'm back over in Titus. It says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Hope doesn't mean that it's uncertain. It means that we have a deep longing for what God has promised us. He has promised us eternal life. So Paul sees his second responsibility is to teach God's word to others. He sees his responsibility is to teach saving truth. Let me show you, just flip over to the book just prior to this, the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2. And there's a lot of parallels between what he wrote to Timothy and what he wrote to Titus. I'll drop down to verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so how do they come to the knowledge of the truth? We have to speak the truth to them. That's how they come to faith. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Let me show you just a couple of other verses on that. Let's flip over to Ephesians. Ephesians is right after Galatians, which is right after Corinthians, which is right after Romans. So let's go to Ephesians, and I want to begin in chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Just as He chose us in Him, this is God the Father chose us in Him, Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him was ages ago before time even began. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in Jesus in him we have redemption in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You see that? We get it through his grace. We don't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory." So God chose us before even time began, before creation. Now, stay right there in Ephesians, and let's go over to chapter 2. Just flip over a page, and I read this verse to us all the time, but let's look at chapter 2, verse 8 in Ephesians. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it, and that it is our faith, is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this was all ordained to us. God elected us before we were ever even born, before we were created. Now, let me flip back over to Romans. I want to just go back over to the left from Ephesians. Go to the left, pass Corinthians. Keep going left and you'll get to Romans. And let's look at Romans Chapter 4, let me start in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. So if we could earn our faith, it would say, okay, well, we're going to work, and now we're going to put God into a position that he has to owe us something. We can't ever do anything to put God into a position that he owes us something. It's not through works. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, So it's not by our works, it's only by our belief, it's by our faith, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So our faith is what gives us our righteousness. It isn't anything we do, it isn't anything we did to earn it. It's by our faith that we are then clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then I'll just show you one more. Go back over to Titus, go back where we were. In letter right before that, 2 Timothy, let's go to 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, this is Paul writing, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us, see that? We've been called. He has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So it was given to us before time even began. That's what Paul is referring to. So let's go back over to Titus, verse 3. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul's third responsibility was to proclaim God's word to teach and preach and explain the truth. So now, verse 4, he says he's writing this letter to Titus. Verse 4, to Titus. That's who he's writing this letter to. But Paul intended for this letter to be circulated and read within the churches within Crete to give the authority to Titus. He says to Titus, My true child in a common faith, So Paul is writing this because he feels he has a responsibility to his spiritual children to help them grow in faith. And he's talking about this common faith. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He was converted when Jesus Christ appeared to him. And Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. So it's a common faith. It's the same faith for both Jew and Gentile, whoever. Whoever may come that places their faith in Jesus Christ that's the common faith. It says grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We get our faith by grace, which I showed you in Ephesians 2 8 and 9. As I said, grace means we get what we don't deserve our sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness, so that our relationship with God is now restored. And because of that, because we now have our relationship with God restored. That brings us peace. That's where the peace comes from. Verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete. He's talking about Titus. As I said at the outset, Paul had been there with Titus in Crete, establishing the churches there. And then Paul left and left Titus in Crete. He says that you might set in order what remains. So Paul had already corrected some wrong teaching there, and now he wanted Titus to complete what needed to be done in setting up these young churches. Some churches did not yet have appointed leadership. These were young churches. It's thought that these house churches, they were actually, the congregations met in people's homes in many of the cities in Crete. So he says, I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. He's going to lay out the qualifications for elders. Your translation may say overseers. Paul is going to lay out these qualifications because churches rarely survive a failure in church leadership. So Paul wants to give these qualifications. These leaders had to be pure and beyond reproach. And these are non-negotiable. You can also look at some of the parallel passages in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13, on some additional qualification for elders. But I won't go into that today. There are some parallels. I'll point to some of them. Verse 6, this is where he's going to start laying out the qualifications. Namely, if any man be above reproach, so it's got to be someone who's pure beyond reproach, let me add this about above reproach. It really just means no claims or charges or accusations are against these people. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. Nobody's sinless. But you need to be morally upright. As Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. That's not the key part. But rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So he's saying that's what it means to be beyond reproach. That's a description of it. He goes on. He says, the husband of one wife. So you've got to be devoted to your wife and be a person of sexual purity. It probably doesn't require that you're married, although this is talking about the husband of one wife, Since Paul wasn't married, it probably doesn't exclude someone who has never married, as long as they have a life of sexual purity. It probably doesn't exclude a remarried widower. But in any event, we see a husband of one wife. Now he's going to talk about their children. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So the children must be believers. So this is probably talking about older children. And they shouldn't be wild partiers or drunkards. For someone who has young children, in the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 5. Let's go back over there. Again, it's just a little bit over to the left. These are for young children. It says, "...he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? So this is someone, if you have young children, they at least need to be under control. If they are of an age of accountability, then they need to be believers. Now, the wife should also be a believer. You can look at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. I've had some discussions about this issue with other pastors I'm not going to tell you that what I believe is absolutely correct because I've had some pastors who I have a lot of respect for. They're very, very solid. And they say, look, this doesn't say that if you have an adult child that then becomes a prodigal or something or goes off the reservation, maybe they never had their faith. That's not on you. That's between them and God. They might not be God's elect. So that's really not on you. Well, I'll agree with that to some extent, but I believe this is pretty clear. I mean, it says if your children aren't believers, maybe they weren't God's elect, but I still think the person isn't qualified to be an elder. That's just my view. This is talking about when you're going to appoint somebody to leadership. I think it's pretty clear that if they have children of the age of accountability, then they need to be believers. So let's continue on. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And that's why I'm saying that. I mean, when you combine it with First Timothy 3, 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And you see this above reproach. If a church leader has a child that is just clearly not living a life that reflects Christ, I just think that that then calls into question their leadership. Doesn't mean that they don't have great capability, but why create all of that disharmony in the church? And I think that's what Paul is trying to avoid here. Let's name leaders who are above reproach. I'm back in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So they live a life as godly examples so that they can be a godly example to others. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who appoints these representatives. These are God's representatives. You can look at that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. They're then to be through prayer, selected and then confirmed by the church, but they're actually appointed by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who puts on the church, on their hearts to appoint these people. And so they're representatives of God. This has to be done in a very thoughtful and prayerful process. Let's read on. It says, not self-willed, So this has to be someone who's not arrogant or someone not so proud. They're always just thinking of their self-interest. This isn't someone who won't listen to others. It's not someone who always insists on having their own way. That's what that means, self-willed. It says not quick-tempered. So this shouldn't be someone who's easily provoked, someone who has a short fuse. It says not addicted to wine. That's clear. Shouldn't be a drunkard, an alcoholic. There shouldn't be things like that that are going to cloud their judgment. They need to be clear-headed. It says, not pugnacious, and that means someone who doesn't easily quarrel often with others, always fighting or arguing with others. And then it says, not fond of sordid gain. So that means they need to have integrity and honesty in their financial matters. Verse 8, but they need to be hospitable. This means always having a heart for others, wanting to help others in need, using the resources that God has given them to help others and encourage others. It says, loving what is good, sensible. So this is someone who's prudent, rational. It says they need to be just. This is a sense of fairness, devout. So it needs to be someone who is upright, is viewed as someone who's upright. You can see the righteousness of Christ through them. They need to be self-controlled. That means they're accountable. They aren't doing things just out of control. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So in order to be a good teacher, they must spend time in studying the word and be loyal to Scripture, committed to its truth, and committed to the inerrancy of the Bible so that they can teach others. And it says that they may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. There they have to be able to strengthen others with their knowledge and understanding of the Word. And then the second part is to refute those who contradict. And so elders, they need to be able to preach and teach the Word. They must only teach sound doctrine. I think that's what this is saying. Pastors and teachers and elders, they're going to incur a stricter judgment. And they're going to have to give an account for the teachings that they've done. Let me show you a couple of verses on that. I'll just flip over there and show them to you. You can go if you want. James, I'll go over to James, which is over to the right after Hebrews. James 3, 1. And it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So people who are teachers of the word, they need to realize that They need to have sound judgment and have solid theology that they can teach others. And then Hebrews 13, 17, just if you're in James, just go over to the left, just a few pages. Then it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so anyone who is a teacher or a preacher, they're going to have to give an account for what they taught. And finally, in Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, it says that we're not to add to or take away from the Word. And unfortunately, many of our denominations today, they're using their black highlighter to mark out the things that the congregation doesn't want to hear. It's really sad, and we're told not to do that. In fact, go back over to Titus, and then if you'll just flip over one page, you'll be over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll point you to verse 3. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's the congregation. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And that's exactly what we see in so many of our denominations today. They're tearing out pages. They're using the black highlighter on Scripture that they just know that if they teach that truth, they're going to lose part of their congregation, which means they're going to lose the money. So they either don't talk about those verses in Scripture at all, or they say they don't apply any longer. And and that's exactly what this is addressing, because the congregation, they don't want to hear these things. Even though they claim to be very tolerant in our culture today, they absolutely don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear their own thing. So let's go back over to Titus. And so where they're talking about and refute those who contradict, we need to do that in a firm way, but we need to do that in a way that we teach with love. And I'll talk about that when we get a little bit further down in this study. Verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision. So he's saying there are many false teachers out there. There are many of them. I've said this before. I think the greatest spiritual danger comes from inside the church. In fact, even Paul told us that in Acts 20. Let's go back over to Acts. Remember, it's the fifth book, comes right after the four gospels. And I'll go to Acts 20 and I'll jump in at verse 29. It says, I know that after my departure, and this is Paul talking, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So that's what we're seeing in many of our churches today. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There are many people that are converts coming into the church and then teaching false doctrine. And what does he say about those? Verse 11, he says, They must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. That to me means they were probably going door to door with their teaching so that they could easily intimidate people rather than teaching it in larger groups where they could be called out. And remember, he's talking about those of the circumcision. So these are Jews and Judaizers in the church who I had explained what that term meant earlier. These were converts to Christianity, but were saying that the only way to truly be saved is you still had to uphold all of the Jewish traditions and Mosaic law and do all this outwardly religious stuff in order to earn your way, which was false teaching. He continues on in verse 10, Teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So they were doing it for their own financial gain. Verse 12, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul here is referring, this prophet that he's mentioning, is actually a poet named Epimenides, who was around in 6 BC. What does he mean here when he said Cretans are always liars? What he may be referring to is Cretans used to claim that Zeus was buried in Crete, Of course, that doesn't make sense because people who believed in Zeus, he was supposed to be an immortal. But in any event, that's what they claimed. And he refers to them as evil beast, which is probably referring to some of their wild, sensual appetites and lazy gluttons. They hated to work, but they loved to eat. That was the reputation for people who lived in Crete. They were liars, evil beast, and lazy gluttons. And look what Paul says in verse 13. This testimony is true. So Paul says, yeah, even that 600-year-old testimony, it's still true. But he continues on, For this cause, reprove them severely, that they may be sound in the faith. So Paul's saying, rebuke this false teaching strongly, but we should do it with patience and with instruction and with a view to helping turn them around and bringing them back to true faith. He said something similar to this in the letter to Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. He says, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will." So we are to be firm and we are to be bold in our rebuke, but we're to do it patiently and with love and with instruction, with a view to helping bring them back to faith. Verse 14, I'm back over in Titus. He says, Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So these false teachers, they had heard the truth previously, but now they were rejecting it. But Paul's telling us, don't be associated with false teachers in the context of worship and spiritual matters. Let me take you over to 2 Corinthians 6. That's back over to the left, just after Romans. And this is Paul writing. I'm in verse 14. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what testimony has Christ with Bilial, That's Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them. So we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. So we're to be separate and live our lives differently than non-believers. That doesn't mean we should go hide ourselves out and not interact. But certainly when it comes to worship and going to church and having fellowship, we need to do that with believers. Let me keep going because he's going to describe these even further. He's going to talk about Jewish believers and how they had beliefs about unclean food But he's going to talk about, you know, it's not about the unclean food. It's their hearts that are a mess. These religious leaders, they only did religious things on the outside, but their hearts were a mess. Look what he says. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. So if you have a pure heart, then your perspective is pure. But he says, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So inner purity produces outer purity. But if your heart is defiled, then everything's defiled. He says, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Let me show you Luke 11. Let's go down to verse 37. Luke 11, verse 37. It says, now when he, this is Jesus, had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at table. And when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So this Pharisee asked Jesus to come eat with him, and Jesus didn't do this ceremonial washing just like all the Jewish leaders did before the meal. Verse 39, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? That was the problem with all this outward religious activity, these traditions they did, these things they did on the outside. They looked great on the outside, but their hearts were a mess. They weren't going to be able to earn their salvation through these outside, outwardly things that they practice. He says their conscience is defiled and their mind is defiled. Verse 16, they profess to know God, so they profess to have a relationship with God, and it looks like that on the outside by doing a bunch of religious stuff, but that will never earn them their salvation. You can't by your own works earn your way to heaven or earn your way to your salvation. He says, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They're not able to provide any benefits to God's children through their outward rituals, which are actually disgusting to God, he's saying there. So it's all about their heart, and they were teaching bad things, and Paul is calling upon Titus to appoint these leaders and get these false teachers out of the churches. So to sum up what we've talked about today, first, the church has to have solid leaders, And these leaders have to meet very high standards of conduct and lifestyle, as well as being very solid and grounded in their theology so that they can teach properly. Number two, false teachers and false teaching must be eradicated from the church. And we should not be attending churches that have teaching that is contrary to sound biblical teaching. And if you're in a church like that right now, and I can tell you, it's happened to me. I've been in two different denominations in my life where I sat there, one, for decades, where I would sit there and I would go, you know, what they're saying from the pulpit, that just isn't biblical And after time, the Holy Spirit put on my heart, this is not sound biblical teaching. This is not where I need you to be. I need you to be at a church that teaches good biblical truth. And fortunately, I have found one. And I think that's why you see some of the mainline denominations. I'm not saying all of them, but there are many of them today that they're seeing their membership decline because they've been swayed by the culture Just like we saw over in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where it says these people want to have their ears tickled. And they accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires rather than good, sound, biblical teaching. And they are going to those churches. And then they've put leaders in place that just tickle their ears. And there's people that are looking for the truth. And I'm not trying to tell you you need to change a church wherever you are. But you need to pray to the Holy Spirit and ask, where does the Holy Spirit want you to be? Where does God want you to be? And if what they're teaching is not in accordance with sound biblical doctrine, I think Paul is saying, you need to get away from teaching that is false teaching. That is not in accordance with sound biblical teaching. So I hope that you'll pray about that. Number three, I think we're also called to correct others' incorrect beliefs. Now, we shouldn't do it in an argumentative or hateful method. We should do it with love. We should be very patient, realize that even like myself, I mean, I grew up, I was taught incorrect theology, and it took me a long time to overcome that. And I even had the wrath of my mother on me for many, many years because she felt that I was pulling away from the tradition of our family, even though it wasn't sound biblical teaching. And so we will incur that. I just ask you to be patient with people. I'm glad people were patient with me. It took me a while through my own study of the Bible to realize what was truth and what false doctrine I had been taught. I don't blame my parents at all because that's what they were taught. And thank goodness, after a very long period of time with my family, many of them, as I've shown them the truth of what's in the Bible, they've said, yeah, that's different than what I was taught. And I tell them, well, you got two choices. You can go with what you were taught or you can go with what Jesus is telling you through the Bible. And thank goodness, many of them have said, yes, I see what you're saying. I'm going to go with what's written in the Bible. And they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and gotten away from this works theology that the only way you can get there is through your own works. And so try to help others in their incorrect theology, but do it with love and with kindness and patience, with a view towards their restoration. And finally, it's not just church leaders who should live and exhibit pure and moral lives, but it's all of us as Christians. You know, we have God living inside us as the Holy Spirit and dwells in us. And we are to serve as ambassadors and messengers sent by Jesus Christ to others. That's why we're here. So we should live in a way that is above reproach. We're going to sin, we're going to mess up, but overall we need to live lives that people can see that we are different, that we do have the Holy Spirit living within us. We need to recognize how honored that we should be because God has chosen us to be his vessel, to spread the good news of the gospel to others. And we should demonstrate that not only through our words, but also through our actions. And as we saw in 2 Timothy 1.8, we should not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. God has chosen us and it is a tremendous honor. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us to continue to clean up those areas of our lives that need attention so that we can be good ambassadors for our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll do some prayerful thinking about these things and continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life to make you into the person that He intends for you to be. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.